Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you this, at least in Central Canada, very chilly February 3rd, 2023. Yeah, hey guys, it was a harrowing walk to school this morning, but (laughs) we made it. Uh, Great to connect, guys. The benefit of, you know, these, what we call frigid temperatures here in Toronto, which I think are just a literal walk in the park in Edmonton, um, (laughs) is that I spilled coffee down the front of my coat this morning and it froze. So I just (laughs) scraped it off and just keep blithely, blithely went about my day, um, (laughs) at least to get here to the studio to talk with you guys. So I want to take up three issues on the show this week. Um, Number one, new poll out. Uh, It's just one poll, but some really interesting findings. Uh, A sense here of a conservative party that is surging, a prime minister who is really struggling in terms of popularity. The leader of the opposition is maybe struggling a little bit too, um, vis-a-vis Canadians' perceptions of him. But Stuart, let's have you unpack it because this was the week that Parliament returned, and I'm just wondering how this type of polling data could or should or will affect um, this sitting of uh, our legislature. Yeah, I so just the, the top line numbers that you'll want to know are that this is an abacus data poll that shows. Um, federal vote intention with the Conservatives at 37% and the Liberals at 29%, um, which is, we just haven't seen anything like that in a while. And um, I, th- I think probably the more interesting parts of this are um, the desire for change is starting to shift in the country. And the maybe not so much that lots of more people want change, but people are less attached to the incumbent. Um, so I think that's interesting. And then the approvals that you mentioned um, for Polyev, they're probably higher than he wants. As of last fall, he was up in the sort of 35, 35% disapproval rating. And he's, that's stopped. It stopped increasing. Now it's starting to decline a little. His approvals are going up a little bit. He's up at 31%. And I think that, you know, it's not what you want, but I think they'll probably be happy that it's, it's, it's kind of stopped where it is. This is, we're talking about peak trucker time when he was talking about, um, the trucker convoy, which is appealing to some people, but maybe more broadly, not so much. Um, the big concern I think for the liberals is that Justin Trudeau's disapprovals are still high. His negative ratings are high, but then also the approvals are plummeting. Um, from last year at a peak of about 38%, he's down at 31% now. So, um, Usually each party will try to find something in a poll like this that they can hang on to. Um, it's probably good for morale for the conservatives, which I, you know, you talk to people inside, they just want to see something move on these polls, even if they know it's not a huge deal in the long term. But if you're a liberal, it is hard to find anything to hang on to in these polls. Let me weigh, let me weigh in, guys. I, you know, there's so much that could be said about this, everything from uh, a, 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 a recommendation of caution 
um, you know, caveats around one poll and all the rest um, to a discussion about uh, a potential sign here that the Trudeau government is crossing sort of the Rubicon uh, where it's difficult for an incumbent government to to come back. Um, you know, that was certainly my experience towards the end of, of the, the Harper government. But the point I want to seize on is um, a sign that the Polyev conservatives seem to be making progress on what is the fundamental political slash electoral challenge for the Conservative Party of Canada, something we've talked about on this podcast before. And that is the party has the highest floor of any of the major political parties in Canada, but the lowest ceiling. It struggled really since its founding to push up beyond, say, 33, 34, 35 percent. Even uh, in its majority victory in 2011, it required a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances, including an historic, historically uh, unpopular Liberal Party for the, the Conservatives to win a majority government. What this poll suggests is that the mix of political messages and uh, f- emphasis on certain issues, including increasingly uh, what we talked about last week as urban disorder, uh, seems to be um, creating a, a kind of political outcome such that uh, Polyev and the Conservatives are have the potential to push up against that uh, ceiling. If they can do that and hold the floor, which which you'll remember was a challenge that Aaron O'Toole faced this party leader, um, that could be the kind of political magic um, that would be required to actually have the Conservatives um, break through and win the next election. One final point, and then I, I promise I'll I'll stop rambling at you. Uh, I think it's kind of fundamental, guys, that the Conservatives um, have to do this because uh, I think all things being equal, they're probably going to have to win a majority government in order to uh, take the reins of power. I mean, we, we're, we're having this conversation against the backdrop in which the Liberals and New Democrats have a parliamentary agreement. And, and one can see a world in which even if the Conservatives win a plurality of seats, uh, the Liberals and New Democrats uh, might uh, renew that agreement or, or restructure it in order to sustain uh, uh, ongoing Liberal government. So uh, I think it'll be key going forward for the Conservatives to continue to push up against that ceiling uh, if at the end of the day, Pierre Polyev wants to move from Stornoway uh, to, I was going to say, 24 Sussex, I guess, wherever the prime minister is living these days, and certainly by then. Yeah, the irony, I think, is that Stornoway was remodeled in the last decade. So you're you're actually kind of giving up really nice digs, from, <laughs> um, from what I remember briefly, for a, uh, a reception I went to there many years ago. But uh, guys, two thoughts on this. One, you know, it is interesting, as you say, the... the parallel Sean to you know the last year 18 months of of uh the Harper government and, and it it's not a criticism of the prime minister I just think it's a dynamic of Canadian politics people get tired of leaders they get tired of um you know silly things like how people talk how they you know what their hair is like um this stuff I think unfortunately does matter and I think there is all there's a sell-by date pretty much on every politician and in some ways justin trudeau has had a remarkable run here so i wonder Stuart, what happens in the liberal party what happens to the liberal caucus if there starts to be more polls like this um you know in the past that 
some seemingly doesn't really matter. It seems like the leaders have such absolute control over these parties. They kind of become Jim Jones cults uh, in the end. Strap on a vest, join me um, <laughs> in a run at uh, the barricades. Um, what's your take here? Is there anxiety in liberal land? Yeah, I, I don't think it's there yet. I think it's I think it's starting to rumble, though. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, we had, you know, Jean Chrétien basically battling Paul Martin for the entire time he was in power and trying to give him enough that would keep him happy and, you know, off his case and from scheming in the background. But I just don't know that that capacity exists in this liberal party because the dynamic is that they were, you know, basically dead in the water. And then Justin Trudeau came along and resuscitated them. Um, and there isn't, you know, superstar power uh, on those benches. So, you know, unless you're looking at, you know, Melanie Jolie, uh, Christia Freeland was always mentioned as someone, but it does seem like now she's increasingly more likely to step out of politics than to try to climb one rung higher. Um, and then there's the like the constant ubiquitous Mark Carney, who's just always kind of lurking in the bushes somewhere outside 24 Sussex. Um, but I don't know. I just don't think that that dynamic exists right now where anyone has the clout to scheme unless things start to get really bad. And, you know, they they don't look like they're on their game, but I wouldn't say that things are really bad right now. Yeah. If, if to stick with the Harper uh, parallel, the, the more likely scenario is is less that people uh, that liberals in the caucus or outside of the caucus uh, in the face of ongoing evidence that the the prime minister is passed his best before date, it's less likely they go after him directly and more that they start to opt out. Um, you'll recall that as we headed into the 2015 election, a lot of longstanding incumbent conservative MPs um, decided not to stand for election. And that's where, um, you know, I do think one of the ways in which Polyev can kind of sustain this momentum, um, guys, is in the area of candidate recruitment. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't think it can be overstated how important a kind of voice of validation of the Conservative Party of Canada, but also a sign of growing momentum, it was to have Jim Flaherty, John Baird, and Tony Clement make the jump from provincial politics into into federal politics in the context of the 2005-2006 election. It signaled to a lot of the voters the conservatives um needed to get if they were going to form government that this was going to be a a broadly center center right government that had some pre-existing government experience that had a degree of competence etc uh so uh Pierre Polyev is doing a lot of things right i think you know we've talked in the past about uh really seizing on issues that are salient um and uh and and kind of owning them and 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 in a way sh setting the the goalposts of of political debate. I, I think a, a, a another parallel track he needs to follow is to ensure that when we whenever there is an election campaign, um, that he's putting forward uh, a, a a set of candidates that Canadians could say, yeah, I, I see a like a competent, capable, um, pragmatic government in 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 waiting. Great insights, guys. Okay, let's go on to our second topic. We're going to stay in Ottawa for this. And that was the testimony this week by um, Dominic Barton, the former head of McKinsey, the former Canadian ambassador to China, um, uh, kind of poster boy, a star witness in, I think, a growing uh, controversy and debate in Ottawa, but the extent to which the civil service, uh, maybe instigated or not by the political wing, of the government has been using consultants in a, I can only just characterize it as a kind of grossly 
um, conspicuous way to facilitate, uh, conceive, implement uh, government policy. Stuart, you wrote a dispatch too, in fact, this week on uh, Barton's appearances in Ottawa. What do you take away from it all? Yeah, well, I think first of all, Barton handled himself pretty well at the committee. It's one of these things where, you know, there's always the uh, possibility that they say something um, incriminating or just totally tone deaf, but uh, he did okay. And I think probably there's two sides of this scandal. One is the McKinsey side, which is, you know, whatever you think of McKinsey, I, I think it's hard to make the case that whatever contracts McKinsey have are somehow more um, odious than all the other consulting firms that have been used. Um, so I, I think Barton was kind of, he was swatting away questions pretty easily. Um, and then the other side of this is that, you know, it's, it's almost a nonpartisan issue. It's more a question of how do we expect our public service to work and how do we expect our government to implement policy and how do we expect them, expect them to, you know, spend money. Um, and that is not what you're going to get at committees. So it was, I, I would say it's in probably my top 10 most entertaining committee hearings. It was um, enjoyable to watch, um, but I don't think that any big points were scored. I think probably the conservatives are going to keep hammering this because there is kind of a whiff of cronyism um, to this. Um, and then, you know, what I would want prefer us to do is talk about the actual debate of how do we use these consulting firms? I think we'll see increasingly less of that. Um, Polyevic question period was hammering McKinsey, he was hammering Barton, he was making accusations of cronyism. These are all very effective political attacks. And I think it's, um, you know, it's in, it's in, there's enough accuracy there that it's probably going to stick a little bit on the liberals. So um, I would expect for the next few weeks, we're going to be hearing a lot about this. Rudyard, let me take this conversation in a slightly different direction. And then I'd, I'd love to you to uh, take it up and, and, and share your, your thoughts. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think that these consulting firms, uh, with McKinsey being sort of a proxy for a broader sector and type of employment, et cetera, the reason it, it's had it has a degree of political resonance um, is because a set of broader trends occurring in our economy and society that we've been really talking a lot about on this podcast, a sense that um, in the past decade or so, this era of ultra low interest rates, um, that we've had an economy that um, has kind of taken its eye off the ball, you know, in terms of value creation and um, and really what is ought to be the foundation of a uh, a growing, dynamic, productive economy. You know that so much money has and 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 human capital has flowed to companies like McKinsey that are sort of in the business of providing, you know superficial advice uh, without really having a stake in the outcomes um, uh, of their advice. In some cases, that's, you know, kind of banal. In some cases, it's actually quite um, uh, consequential. Think, for instance, the reports that McKinsey was advising Purdue Pharma on how to expand sales of Oxycontin. And we, of course, know how that story ends. But I, you know, if I can take one positive away from this heightened attention on the kind of consultant class, it's that hopefully it reflects a kind of broader trend in our political economy thinking that, yes, of course, we're going to have people doing these types of jobs. We're going to have people doing podcasts. Um, but fundamentally, uh, our economy needs to be a bit more um, concrete and and tangible. And we need to have the capacity to make stuff and build stuff. And, um, you know, hopefully 
uh, one of the consequences is as our best and brightest are leaving university, they're not pursuing uh, careers at McKinsey doing PowerPoint presentations. They're going into advanced manufacturing or biomedicine or uh, energy transition or whatever, the stuff that actually creates value and drives our economy. How, how, how would you react to that? Um, I, I concede take that takes us a bit off the uh, topic of uh, of Dominic Barton's presentation before Parliament this week. Yeah, well, let me get back to Barton just in a second. But to respond to what you just said, Sean, I think I think McKinsey and those other consultants would say, look, at many times, actually, we create a lot of value because we're able to frankly, work outside of the bureaucratic systems that the civil servants are you know, constrained by. And I, I think there's no coincidence that we're talking contracts in the billions of dollars. I think this, to me, is in some ways a, a critique, a, a refutation of the value of the public service itself. This, in a sense, is symptomatic of some kind of market failure. It's a market failure on the part of the public service to do many of the things probably that their political masters, maybe even they themselves, want to do. So they're now having to turn to these firms to create structures of ideation and implementation that are completely outside of their own, most likely risk adverse, overly bureaucratic, um, incremental uh, cultures that they've created. So I, I hope the discussion doesn't end simply on the consulting firms, but it goes back into the culture of these bureaucracies to find out what's wrong here and why, in a sense, we're going down this route. I don't think it's just out of, you know, greed or entitlement or corruption. I think it's because there's some kind of failure going on in the bureaucracy. There's one thing in your story, though, about Barton, just to go back to him for a sec, just kind of captured for me perfectly, you know, something we have also talked a lot about the hub, which is, you know, the, the, the somewheres and the elsewheres, you know, the people who in a sense feel like I'm from somewhere and I care about it. And I care about, you know, my community, my regional identity, you know, all those things that really animate a lot of, I think, Canadian sense of who they are. And then, you know, the elsewhere or nowhere class who are on their laptops, uh, in planes, between different global metropoles, you know, part of this, you know, global, in this sense, consulting class. And he did this great quote, I think this is very revealing, where he said, to the committee members, with all respect, I love Canada. I'm from Canada, but Canada does not move the dial. Just a kind of, I think, a wonderful insight into the extent to which people like Dominic Barton are, you know, are these what we used to call transatlanticists. I guess they're truly globalists who kind of see Canada as this nice, quaint little I don't know, maybe condo project in the sky um, with, you know, the real action. And hey, this is Dominic Barton's career. The real action is China. The real action is where you do move the dial and kind of, I don't know, it, it was interesting, Stuart. I don't know, slap across the cheek. I don't know what he's really saying there. But to me, it just reveals the psychology, the worldview of this kind of uber consultant. Uh, epitomized uh, in the career of Dominic Barton. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was so eager to cover this committee is that there is a <laughs> level of rich guy obliviousness that is very entertaining and very good for news copy. And his point there was that why would I engage in corruption? Because this stuff is beneath me. Like these contracts are barely $100 million. And 
I uh, I thought that was a great defense. The other thing that was very entertaining from this committee is Gord Johns, the NDP MP, um, he decided he would do somewhat tongue-in-cheek a SWOT analysis of McKinsey at the presentation. He said, no, your strengths are, you're able to get government contracts on Canadian dime, your weaknesses are scandal after scandal, opioids, pandemic. And Dominic Barton said, that's a terrible SWOT analysis. It's too biased. And he was just like offended that it was a bad SWOT analysis. It wasn't anything else other than that. So I would say anyone who tells you committees are boring, uh, these are the kind of things you live for as a journalist where it's actually newsy and it's fun to watch. If I can just um, pick up the conversation um, as it relates to the conservatives, um, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to the question of how would this sort of small p populist edge in uh, the modern conservative party, especially under Pierre Polly, have manifested itself there. In some ways, it, it hasn't manifested itself, right? The, the party is um, resolutely pro-immigration, for instance. It hasn't tilted in a kind of populist direction on that subject, on, uh, on a whole host of other issues, including, say, support for uh, Ukraine, uh, similarly, has, has chosen what would be a pretty conventional mainstream position. Um, the kind of sharpness, though, in the language, not just about McKinsey, but also pharmaceutical companies, um, as Stuart outlined in his piece today, suggests that, uh, you know, the extent to which people in the past have equated big C conservative politics with big business in Canada, um, they're, uh, they, they ought to kind of change their their priors because, and, and, and that goes as well for those who work for some of these companies that actually, I think under Polyev, we're going to see a conservative party that um, I think scrambles the way people tend to think about about conservative politics and its association with the private sector. And I, I suspect it's going to extend not just from consulting firms like McKinsey or pharmaceutical companies like Purdue, um, but banks, telecommunications companies, et cetera. If you're a government relations person working for some of these companies, I think you're about to discover that you have essentially no friends uh, in, in Ottawa, um, uh, which I, you know, I think will, it'll be interesting to see how that pushes the other parties and what are the kind of policy outcomes of uh, a kind of hyper populist discussion about um, big business in Canada. Great insights, guys. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we're back on the other side, we're going to talk two hot button issues, put them together, see if we can get some cold fusion going, immigration and real estate. That right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Okay, guys, let's, in the remaining moments of the show, dig into a Hub viewpoint that was published uh, today. Um, what are we? We are the chilly 
February 3rd, 2023. It's by a new contributor we're excited to work with, a guy called uh, John um, Pasalas, who is a real estate kind of expert who really focuses on data and using data to try to interpret the real estate industry and trends for his clients. He's published a piece for us titled Canada's immigration policies are driving up housing costs. Um, Stuart, maybe you can break down the argument. Uh, It seems uh, to be rather conventional to me, an assumption that we're once again, you know, increasing demand while struggling over supply. So yeah, guess what? Costs are going to go up, but it's, it's fascinating the extent to which the Liberals very ambitious now immigration targets upwards of half a million people as early as 2024 they seem to be being connected by the media not just the hub but others to the supply challenges healthcare housing infrastructure education that we're facing in canada i'm wondering the extent to which this government unwittingly or not is pushing the country into a debate about immigration, something we have not had in Canada for pretty much my entire lifetime. Yeah, I, this the, the crux of this argument, I think, is really interesting because it's actually something that, you know, you, you don't really hear in the mainstream media. And um, the, the part that I think surprised me because I didn't know the numbers were this high is we have nearly half a million people coming in as permanent residents now. Um, but The thing that is pointed out in this piece is the number of foreign students coming in has nearly doubled from 2015 to 2021. Um, We're at now 621,000 in 2021. And, um, you know, the question of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is almost besides the point, because the question is, can we, are we able to bring in that many people and still have housing, still have healthcare that works? Um, I think increasingly we're seeing the answer is no to those questions, maybe even whether we did that or not. Um, so I, I think it's really important to have these debates and to do it in the, you know, data centric way, like John is doing in his piece. Um, because I, you know, several years ago, I read the work of Eric Kaufman, who uh, points out that we kind of have a taboo on these discussions, um, in Canada, the taboo has lasted decades. And I think probably on balance, it's been a good thing that, you know, immigration is kind of settled. It, there was a consensus that we like immigration um, as long as the numbers stayed in that kind of broadly acceptable range. Um, but I wonder if that taboo is now breaking. And Eric Kaufman's point is that when this breaks, it doesn't just, you know, trickle. It is a tidal wave. Um, and that's what we saw happen with Donald Trump, who talked about the southern border in a way that nobody in the Republican Party had dared talk about in a mainstream way before. So I would I would encourage people who are concerned about this or people who just have, you know, very obvious questions about our capacity to handle, um, you know, nearly a million people every year to just ask these questions, do it in the mainstream media, do it in a way that is about the facts and is about, you know, the data that the jump was out there, because if we don't have this debate, then other people will have it in a much more insidious way. Here, here. Um, You know, as I've said before on this podcast, Canada has achieved something special Um, relatively high levels of public support for relatively high levels of immigration. Um, That's an advantage that we ought to be protecting. And there's a risk here um, that the government's increases to our annual intake targets actually puts that advantage at risk. Um, You mentioned John's analysis that shows that um, the annual immigration intake target is only 
one piece of the puzzle. Um, I'd encourage listeners to check out our past episode of Hub Dialogues with Mikhail Scuderud uh, uh, on this subject, where uh, he explains that actually when you account for um, uh, temporary foreign workers, when you account for uh, foreign students, et cetera, the number pushes well up beyond a million. Um, now, those people aren't all settling permanently, but from the point of view of demand on housing and demand on services, that's the number that actually matters, um, not simply the annual intake. So uh, I think you're right to raise that. Um, and and I, would just, I would just say that given the pressure that we're seeing in our major cities, uh, uh, this ought to be a cause for concern. Uh, later this morning, we'll have our latest episode of From Dialogues with David Frum, where we talk about um, pressure on cities, not merely related to housing and, and other public infrastructure, but but more broadly on on crime and homelessness and, and substance abuse, et cetera. But one of the extraordinary numbers that comes out of that conversation is that in 2019, the year prior to the pandemic, 60,000 people actually left the city of Toronto, of which a quarter were under the age of five. Were it not for these huge inflows of, of immigration uh, each year, the city of Toronto actually would have experienced a net decline in population. Um, so people in a way are voting with their feet because of all of the pressure that um, um, that is being placed on on housing and so on. I'll stop rambling here because I'd love to take here uh, Rudyard's take. But I guess just in sum, uh, if you are committed to immigration as a key part of Canada's economic and sort of social identity, which I am, um, then we got to be careful here. We, we're playing with fire, as you say, Stuart, if we if we just continue to juice the numbers without really concerning ourselves with the kind of broader impact on our on our society. Yeah. And I think the interesting part this article, John's brings up for me is just the impact on rents. Right. So he looks at uh, under the previous Fed conservative government. 2006 to 2015, we had a 19 percent increase in rent over approximately a decade. In contrast, in the in the last seven years, we've had a 42 percent increase. So that you know, average rents now in Toronto are 2,500 dollars. And you know, we again, we know in in many cases this is there's there's a direct connection here back to foreign students. 621 thousand foreign student permit holders in 2021 um and a lot of those rightly should and could and will have you know fast tracks to permanent residency so what what this does i think is is it creates an affordability crisis for everyone uh for these foreign student permit holders for refugees for new arrivals for the longer settled. And it's it's forcing prices up at a pace where, if you think of that, $2,500, so roughly $30,000 a year in rent after tax. Okay, guys, those are after tax dollars. So you just think about what that is, what portion of your disposable income, average Canadian income, $56,000. Average income in Toronto, higher, yes, $92,000. But you're still eating up you know, 30,000 bucks on average of your pre-tax income to housing, one third, then factor in, you know, rising food costs, food inflation up 10%, 11% year over year. This starts to get worrying. I think it starts to create a pessimism about Canada as a country of opportunity, these old bromides and platitudes that 
you know, or trot it out to explain why people could and should want to start new lives here in Canada. And I, I think it's Sean, it's bigger than we're just running into, uh, you know, the consensus around immigration. We're undermining that maybe needlessly. I think we're actually deflating a bigger kind of raison d'etre rationale about Canada as a country of opportunity of, of a place to put down roots, to have a future. You extinguish that and you know, you lose something more than just growth. You lose more than just consensus around, yes, an important characteristic of our society, a high immigration nation. You lose the kind of guts of uh, nationhood, the impetus for future prosperity and growth. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little bit gloomy, Stuart, but I, I, I just think these numbers are just out of this world. Yeah, I think that's representative of the mood um, among a lot of Canadians right now. And I think we see that in the polling numbers. So I, I think maybe the tough thing for Polyev will be to, um, the point will come when he has to stop channeling the disappointment and frustration and offer some positive vision. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that's around the corner. Okay, guys, we're going to put a pin in the show right there. Three topics. That was terrific. Uh, enjoy your weekend and... Uh... I'm not going to be here next Friday. I'm taking a well-deserved vacation. So you guys are going to hold down the, the fort and I will <laughs> listen to you from afar with great pleasure. I'll okay. cover Rudyard's rants. Excellent. Somebody's <laughs> got to do it. <laughs> Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub i've been in conversation with sean spear our editor at large and Stuart thompson the hub's editor-in-chief this program is produced and edited by amal otter guzman you can access a video version of this recording anytime on youtube simply search for the hub or the hub canada you can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca and finally, you can subscribe to the Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers, discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.